Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast, where I bring you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. This is Ryan Tansom, your host, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. Ryan Tansom here. Today's guest name is Bob Mesta. Bob has launched 3,500 products. He owns a company right now called Rewire Group where their sole goal is to dive into the consumer's mind and understand exactly why people are buying. He's got a theory that he has created called Jobs to be Done that articulates exactly how to dive into the consumer's behavior and the consumer's mindset. Bob, it's just an amazing way to look at how people search for progress. And we talk about how your business in transition and how you're trying to figure out what you're going to be doing with your business next and how your consumers and your clients are going to be changing at the same time. And what are some ways that you can tackle both of these problems going forward? This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by The Valley Advantage. The Valley Advantage is a platform delivered via peer groups and or one-on-one to help you build a valuable company that can thrive without you while putting an exit plan in place so you have the options to sell when you want, to who you want, for how much you want. You're able to manage the business by the numbers, work in the business as much or as little as you want, and you fully understand how the business impacts your personal financials. If you want to know more, check out the show notes or the website. Lots of information in this podcast. We get into some really cool stuff at the very end of the podcast about what does it mean to actually be progressing in your own life. So without further ado, I really hope you enjoy this interview with Bob. Bob, how are you doing today? Great. How are you, Ryan? I'm doing good. I'm uh, really excited for this conversation because you've got a really awesome background, a lot of experience in a lot of different ways. And uh, for our listeners, why don't you go back to kind of the origination of this theory that you have that is directly integrated into your life and your practice? Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm going to go back a little farther to the, that that I was um, so as a, a little kid. Basically, I've had three close head brain injuries, and I'm dyslexic, and I, I struggle very, very difficult to, for me to read and write. And my mom, who was a school teacher, and my dad was an engineer, and my mom, who basically, uh, at, when I was seven years old, I remember very vividly her realizing that I was one of those kids that she was teaching in school that, that was basically remedial reading and special ed. And so, and she knew that if I was labeled uh, dyslexic, that I'd be put into a different stream. And so for me, I, I was one of those kids who asked a thousand questions because I was always trying to figure things out because I couldn't actually absorb anything reading. And so to me, this notion of questioning and building how things work really kind of – like I was taking things apart by the time I was 10. I was literally getting in lots and lots of trouble, so I figured out how to put things back together by the time I was 13. Um, I started making products. I do garbage picking and pick things together. But in the end, I, I can't read and write, but I can see equations. I literally have almost an identic memory as long as I'm moving and writing. So I can remember just about ridiculous amounts of detail. But if I'm sitting still, I can't remember anything. So for me, the what really helped was being able to understand how I learn and then how to turn those things into products and services. So I've been actually – I've developed and launched over 3,500 products over the last 52 – I'm 52 this year. So – um, and I've worked on everything from materials on the stealth bomber in terms of radar absorbing materials, guidance systems for the Patriot missile, to uh, ma- uh, mac and cheese, 
uh, for craft to uh, um, software and everything in between. So the only thing I really haven't worked on much is insurance, and that's because I just don't ins- uh, understand it at all. <laughs> like right? you, and, and, you and everybody else, right? <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. And so one of the basic premises that I came up with is that um, when you ask people what they want, when you're trying to design a new product – um, they actually have not a clue what they want. And so they know the outcome that they want or the the desired outcome they're looking for, but given the context that they're in, things are different. And so what I realized is all the data that I was getting in the in the beginning made no sense. And so I came up with this framework called Jobs to be Done that people don't buy products or services. They hire them to do a job in their life. And so there's different candidates, there's hiring criteria, there's firing criteria. And so for the last 30 years, I've been kind of honing and refining as one of the different 25 different methods I have on, on literally how, how does the market really work. And so, uh, and Clay Christensen and I have been friends for about 25 years, and he wrote this book on the method that I, I've been working on for forever and primarily because at some point he thought it was powerful enough and he turned I'm a practitioner if you will and Clay's the theorist and so and that book's but, called competing against luck yeah competing against luck and so the, the the basic premise is that we're trying to find what causes people to basically make progress and what 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 is the situations that people are in what are the pathways in which they seek to be better and then what are the hiring and fire criteria that they make for the products or services that they choose and that that frame enables me or enables you to be basically be able to see what's next and allows you not to be biased to what the product is or the service is but more where is where are they struggling so my key phrase is always the struggling moment is the seed for all innovation because the moment that that a consumer or customer struggles they care about something and they want something better and so the more you find struggling moments and you can start to understand the progress they want to make, then I can actually design better products. But if there's no struggling moment, typically I can't. I, I have never been uh, successful doing it that way. And so it's really using that frame around how I look at the market. Well, and I, I love it because uh, the book – sheds a whole different light on all the other stuff that's been kind of uh, thrown at everybody in marketing and how to look at products and services. But, you know, where, where I want to go with uh, the kind of the, the conversation for our listeners is, you know, it, at this point in transition that business owners are going through, there, yeah. there's kind of, it's a twofold of, um, challenge, I think, where business owners are trying to figure out how to transition, what the timing is going to be. But not only are they in a time of transition, but I believe that our economy and the time in the world that we live in, to, live in that the, their clients are also in a time of transition, that they're buying differently and wanting different outcomes. So I think there's this unique crossroads where they have to be, we have to be transitioning our companies, but transitioning into a better platform and a better way of operating and I think as we dive into why don't you give your there's two different examples that I think are fantastic one is the the mattress example or the milkshake I don't know which one ever you like best or how the best you can describe the 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 complexity and the comprehensiveness of the jobs to be done yep so so in the book there's a there's a good example around a guy who bought a mattress and um, his name is Brian Walker he's uh, he's in Chicago and he happened to come to a conference that I was speaking at and he volunteered and I put him up on stage with me and I just interviewed him about the mattress he bought right and so what happens is um, we we end up building this level of um, explanation of why we buy things that is just not founded 
in reality. And so what happens is that he came up and said, yeah, I just bought a, a, a new mattress at Costco. I'm like, Costco? Yeah. So he goes, it was a total impulse purchase. A total impulse purchase. He goes, when did you buy it? So what happens is you then start to think of that as the scene of the crime. And the, the method is actually built on criminal and intelligence ter- interrogation methods. Hmm. And so then I spend basically about 40 minutes interviewing him around what in the world was going on? Why why did you buy the mattress then and there? And so one of my favorite lines was, he's like, yeah, I was a total impulse purchase. It was on a Saturday morning. He's got two kids with him. He's at Costco. And anybody who's been to Costco on a Saturday morning knows it's absolute chaos. <laughs> right. And he's like, yeah, and I cut down this aisle so I could get to a better uh, – you know, checkout lane, and there was the mattress. My wife saw it. We, she had a little sample. I felt it, and next thing she goes, that's fine. I ran outside and got myself one of those big carts, loaded it. Like, you had no plan on buying it at all. He goes, no. It was like total, total. I'm like, so how long have you not been sleeping? Oh, and then he goes, oh, that's probably been about two years. And so all of a sudden, you start to realize he has all these compensating behaviors of, you know, I work out to the point of exhaustion. You know, when I really can't sleep, I drink a half a bottle of scotch. It's, you know, I, I, I you know, I got a mattress topper. I got new pillows. He's like all these other things he did in order to finally get to the point where he, you know, decided it was the mattress, one. And then two, it was like, well, how did you decide on the mattress? He goes, well, my wife would never go into a mattress store. You know, the, our, we got our mattress from my uncle who was in the, you know, for work for Macy's and got back. And I said, well, how did you end up buying this? She goes, because we were together. She could feel it. And she knew it was, it was, you know, it would make me happy. Was she having any problems? Nope, not whatsoever. And so all of a sudden you start to realize like the, his hiring criteria is there's no way to get anybody to, to, to get his wife to the table, right? To be able to look at mattresses. She doesn't even see the problem. The fact is, is that the other big part of it was he had a big – he's doing a startup and he had a really big client that he just landed. He goes, if I can't sleep, I'm not going to be able to you know, pull this off. And so there's just all these kinds of pressures and, and causes behind it. And then you start to do more interviews and you see these patterns of people compensating for a long time. And then all of a sudden you see that most people have some big event that they have coming up that they're worried about sleeping. Um, typically, it's about convincing the other person. So – What's interesting is he said it was a total impulse purchase. I didn't think I needed a mattress, and oh my God, it's the greatest mattress in the world. And so if you interview him or give him a survey, he gives all the wrong answers. It was the fact is I hadn't been sleeping for years. My wife, my wife told me there was no, there's no reason to, to get a mattress. She didn't think there was anything. I had something coming up, and if I didn't sleep, I was going to be in trouble. And I, you know, and all of a sudden it's like you see these patterns. And so the whole purpose is that. There isn't a, a million stories out there. What you start to see is there's only about four or five or six different ways in which people buy mattresses. And then you start to see these struggling moments where when he's searching and how he finds it and what else is going on. And and the, the, the moral of the story is that most people are talking about the springs and the, and the layering and the mattress and everything. And to be honest, he had no concept of any of the features and benefits in it. None at all. Besides, it was a foam mattress versus a spring mattress. Crazy. And so – People are shouting all the wrong things at people. And so what you start to learn is you're spending all this money on marketing, shouting features and benefits that are not relevant, or in some cases, all of them that they can't make any sense of. Yeah, it's uh, I'm extremely uh, aware of that because our old business was – it started out in the copier industry and then as we built out the IT service and the software, you went from, hey, guess how many drawers and how many clicks and how many – all this stuff that no one really cares about to, hey, by the way, we're problem solving. So there's kind of this conscious shift but you still aren't addressing – 
like what they're hiring you for, which I think is That's super, right. super That's intriguing. Right. And I, the, right. the milkshake example, I think even is even well, the, the two examples that you gave that, that uh, people were buying it in the morning and why yeah. they were buying it. I like, cause originally when you started that story, I'm like, Oh my God, people are buying milkshakes in the morning <laughs> and then you describe it. And uh, well, it's, it's really the beginning of the smoothie. It was before there was the yogurt smoothies and what you start to realize yeah, yeah. is people are, didn't really, they didn't really care. They, they had enough protein, enough fat, enough carbohydrates, and it was big enough. It, it was only a couple of stores that ended up using it. And it was like, like, why are the, it was, uh, in this case, we look for anomalies and it's like, what in the world's going on at these stores? And you started to realize that there weren't many, but there was a, there's few where they're selling a ton of milkshakes in the morning and you're like, what's going on? And so all of a sudden you said, well, what does it really compete with? And that's where Clay talks about it. It competes with a bagel and a, and a donut and a, and, and, and a coffee and some of these other things. And what you realize is like you can totally see that it's not – milkshakes aren't competing with other milkshakes. Milkshakes are competing across a category – like across categories. And so part of it is, is, is being able to figure out kind of what it is and how you actually look at it. So I actually don't believe there's any new consumption. I believe that most people are either – um, they're, they're do they're getting the job done some other way and you need to find a way in which to ha help you do their job better. So and it, it, okay, no, keep going. No, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, so, you know, if you've got, you know, a business that, and I, and I see them all the time where the, you know, you've owned, you know, the a business, a business owner, entrepreneurs own their company for called 10, 20, 30 years, whether they're a manufacturer or professional services firm or yeah. they sell products and services online. They were originally the traditional retail, but now they sell half their stuff online. Um, I think there, there's this forcing where they used to know the product and the features and the functions and like it was a way different way of looking at their clients. And as you're, as these individuals are being forced to create a more valuable business for themselves or for potential buyer or for their internal management team, what are some ways that they can like start viewing themselves or, or their customers in a completely different fashion? So, so the first thing is that, to be honest, I, I, I never talk to people who are your best customers. Uh, in most cases, you, don't, you, you, you talk to people who recently switched. So we only talk to people who switched to, uh, to you or away from you. So if you're a software company, it's like, I want to talk to the last three people who basically signed up for your software. The people who have been with you forever actually cannot articulate in any means or fashion what you do because it's so built into their subconscious they can't remember it all. And so part of this is being able to like it's, if you buy Tide every week and you sit down and, and I interview about Tide, you can say, oh, you know, the – it smells great, and oh my gosh, it's you know it gets my clothes clean. And then I'll say, well, why? What do you mean it smells great? It just it smells good. And then you'll say, well, it gets my clothes clean. How do you know it gets clean? It's like, well, it comes out, and it's not dirty. It's like, well, was it dirty going in? I I don't know. <laughs> but if you talk to somebody who switched from Tide to Cheer or Cheer to Tide, all of a sudden we understand why what what they were using didn't work, and why they chose the next thing, and why it did work, and what was the job they were trying like what progress were they hoping to make because of that switch? And so by talking to people who just came to you, it's like well, of all the things, why would you come you know to us? Like you had you had a you had a vendor for you were for for thirty years, and they were doing this and this, and they were doing a great job. Yeah, but they just didn't listen to me. I kept giving them a list of problems, and they didn't. And so why today did you switch? Well, we have this big thing coming up or this was going on and all of a sudden you start to realize that it's, and they'll tell you, oh, I bought you because you, you were a good price. And what I will say is price is never the reason to move. It's either better value that you're doing more for less money or the fact is, is that you're, you're doing the right amount of things or in some cases I had a client last, or a customer last week say, yeah, 
I, I, I saved, a, I saved, you know, 20% by moving to this other company. And you're like, so how much is it? It turned out to be like 30% more. And I'm like, wait a second, you said you're saving money. He goes, yeah, my downtime is literally almost half. And so that's saving me so much money because I don't have the downtime. And you start to realize he's paying more in dollars, but the fact is he's losing less in downtime. And so his equation for saving money was completely different than the bill. It's mm-hmm. crazy. So like – um, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the exponential organizations or just how the uh, there's a, some other books that are out there as industries are shifting, changing. I mean, Amazon is just the easy staple uh, target where you, you don't know where your competition is going to come from. And yeah. Del- Deloitte's got this article out there where I, it's got this cool graph where you've got all these industries and then all of a sudden all these different colors start to like – in interchange with each other because yep. you're competing with other people that you didn't know you were competing with. How do you, if you're in, uh, if you're kind of in this transition phase or you're, I mean, or any business owner that's trying to continue to compete, what are the ways that you can be aware of all the different ways that this competition can come to your client that are competing yeah. for the jobs to be hired? Yeah. So so when you when you put on this set of lenses, you start to look at it and realize like. What are the workarounds? What are the other competition? What are the other things? And you start to realize that they're not in Because most of the time when we do research or you're talking to consumers, you talk to them about your product and your service. And so then they talk about exact direct competitors because the language you're using is is the competitive one. But when you start talking about, well, I want to save time, it's like, yeah, I, I, I use Uber. And all of a sudden you start to realize that Uber competes with renting a car all day. But most people would say like, well, no, Uber's a taxi. And it's like, yeah, but how many people have stopped renting cars because – of basically Uber or that Uber competes with going you, you getting up and driving and picking up your kids to, 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 to from, a, from a friend's house. So all of a sudden you start to realize like all of a sudden it's, it's stuff you would never have done before and now you can do. Mm-hmm. And so it's, 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 it's starting to understand again where are those struggling moments and how do people pull things into it and you start to see a much broader competitive set than just what I would say is always the direct competition. So whenever somebody talks about a feature, I'll always say, well, why is that important? What do you mean by that? Well, you know, what else did you use? Well, why didn't you try this? And so all of a sudden you start to realize to get these hiring and firing criteria, it's all very, very different. So let me give you an example. I was, so I was working with the Harvard Divinity School and we've been interviewing people of why, why are people not going to church or what, like it's different non-denominational. So you're just mm-hmm. searching, basically people are switching religions. And so one of the things we found out is what was the job? Why do people hire a church? And there's a whole bunch of different reasons. But what we found is one of the greatest competitions for people who are between like 20, 20, 22, and 30 is one of the greatest competitors is CrossFit. What? And you're like, wait a second. That's not right. And Soul Cycle, And you start to realize it and you start to say, well, why do you go to church? I, I go basically for some, for some peace, peace and quiet for myself a way in which to build myself up. And so all of a sudden you start to say, okay, both of those do that. And you say, and then, you know, I go there for a sense of community. And all of a sudden you go, if you know CrossFit, you go like, nope. everybody there. And then all of a sudden you start to, and you start to realize that CrossFit and both SoulCycle, they both do a, a really good sense of being able to, 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 to do probably seven eighths of the job. And in this case, they're like, you know what? You have people who will barely go to church once one day a week, but they'll go to CrossFit four or five times a week. (laughs) And so you start to realize when you look at the hiring and firing criteria that they are truly competitors for people's time. 
So, so <laughs> how do you, uh, like, when you're dealing with business owners where they've been in their company for a long time, how do you get them out of their head to, like, you know, I, I don't know how many times, like, well, this is, you know, it's all, it's the, yeah. the crap, but this is the way it's always been done. This is what my customers like. I'm pig-headed, and this is, yeah, I know, yeah. I know. This is how we've done it for years. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, it's always like, well, let's just talk to your customer. Let, uh, get me one person on the phone. So I, I went down and talked to a, 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 a large retailer um, last week. And I said, look, we're going to meet. You know, I'm not sure whether we can help you or not. But, bef- you know, when we come down, I'll give you the basics of jobs. But let's let, get somebody get a recent somebody who bought something recently and let's understand what caused them to go buy this thing at your store. And so we talked for about an hour and then they basically had this person on the phone and I called him up and I literally just, I just interrogated him like, why, why now? Why didn't you go to this other store? Why, why did you think of, and they're looking at me like, you're trying to undo the sale. I'm like, no, I'm trying to actually understand the fundamental causal mechanisms that got her here versus there. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden you start to realize, and what, what happened is, is that they, they've been talking about the product the whole time and not them as a solution. And so all of a sudden they couldn't see how the, how their store played a role in helping them make progress. Like, yeah, it saved me a bunch of time to do this and this and this. And so all of a sudden it was like, I thought it was about our selection. And it turns out it's all about time. So, and so all of a sudden they're, they're just like, holy crap. And so my thing is, is it might have been about selection and that's why people say they come. But at the end of the day, look, if they really wanted to do this, they, they would have to do all the research. They'd have to learn about it. They'd have to do all these other things. They walk in and like you, they know your people are knowledgeable. They know what to do. They know how to ask the questions and you actually guide them and tell them exactly what to do. It's like, you know, they're, to be honest, your products in, in comparison, benchmark, they're okay, but they're not great. It's the service that people are coming for. Like, oh my God, like they're just like, holy crap. Like we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're not focused on the right things. Well, and explain because I, I I totally agree with you. And let's dive into because um, I think a lot of people are like, well, we've got customer data and we've got and so the difference between data and the insights that you're talking about and that kind of uh, uh, dovetails from the personas yeah. that we were discussing. Yeah, yep. So um, it goes back to a, a good story that Clay always tells, which is Clay goes, you know, when when I when I go to heaven. You know, and I want to find out about something. You know, I, I'm going to, you know, I, I have the feeling that there's going to be no data stores. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, you know, data, data actually doesn't ever tell you the whole truth. So in some cases, there's certain parts of data that will tell you the story, but it never tells you the whole story. And and for the most part, you know, so if that case, you know, all data really lies. So all data is going to go to hell. And, and, and in this case, what I mean by that, or what he means by that is, is the fact is, is like, at some point we only have pieces and what we haven't done is we haven't connected the dots. And so to be honest, most data is like, you know, do you like steak or do you like pizza? And the most people answer like, I like both, but it depends on the context you're in. Mm -hmm. And if I think about the last time I had steak and I say, no, no, I'm going to pull steak out and put pizza in it. Like, yeah, I don't like pizza so much. I like steak better. And if I talk about the pizza situation, it's the, it's the reverse. And so what we realize is that context creates value. And that what happens is when you ask generic questions like, you know, what's more important, service or price? Or what's more? And they're like they're trying to literally average all this crap in their head to answer your question. <laughs> and what you're really trying to do is get to what in what situation and what outcome does this is this most important and so most of the time what I'm trying to do is actually just understand that context and the outcome that says today's the day I'm going to do something. 
and from there I can we can learn it all. So so ultimately it's it's that that big data like so my my favorite is that you go into big data and you try to find correlations between things, but for the the method that I'm talking about is like. Deming told me very, very early on, like, there's nothing random, everything is caused. Randomness is basically our ability to explain. And so, to me, it's really about, I need to find what causes people to come and buy, as opposed to what correlates to people and buy. And so, most big data is built on this notion of correlation and average, and they discount context, and they discount, basically, they actually measure the easy things, not the hard things. So, so how do that, you me- how do you go in and measure the hard things then? Because I, I totally agree with you. Because I mean, you, I mean, data doesn't lie when you're looking at it without a context. But you throw the context right. and the situation on top of it, and then you can. I mean, what, what, well, have you ever heard that you, the number one way to lie is with stats? <laughs> that's right. Well, the, the the thing to me is that what people end up understanding is they they, they keep thinking. Well, if I talk about a very specific situation and I talk about a very specific outcome, it's very niche. But the reality is, is that when you start to abstract it to a certain level, it's like when – so for example, if you think of like a Snickers bar, it's like, look, there's there's certain causal mechanisms that say right now is the time to have a Snickers bar. Typically, you're very – you're trying to do something and get something done and your stomach is hungry and your blood sugar is dropping, right? You, you don't really care who's around or or not. The fact is, is that you're trying to actually mainline food to stop your stomach and actually give yourself the energy you need to keep going through the busy moment. And despite the fact that you might be a kale-munching salad person, in the moment of time when you're saying, boy, I got to get this done, you'll grab a Snickers. And so all of a sudden, the value code is very, very different. And so by understanding those specific contexts, and abstracting them to a certain level, you start to realize like when this, it's dominoes. When this and this and this happen, boom, that's what they do. And it doesn't matter that they say, ooh, I'm a healthy or I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm an indulgent person. Like personas and people type don't matter. It's more about that context and outcome. And so you realize it starts to cut across all demographics. So and so you, – well, yeah, Keep going. No, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, so like you know, if, if you're – you know, one, how often and like how do you integrate this kind of uh, your theory and the philosophy into your business? And then um, that's the, the first question. The second question would be how often do people completely change their products and services or is it just different kind of messaging? Oh, so um, this is this is where it's going to be a little bit strange. But So, for example, I've, I've done as few as 10 interviews and people change their, their whole business – for and it takes them three years to catch up after just ten interviews, hmm. right? And this is like you know a twenty thirty million dollar business where it's like oh my gosh we're focused on the wrong things I got to change my sales process we got to change the product offering I got to actually add this new technology I got to so out of and they're like ten, the the thing is is those ten interviews start to give you the clues of what's going on and then you can go into your database and start to see how it how how to size it all and once you size it you're like oh my gosh this is what we have to do so. It's just almost like the kernel of a of a fractal where I can give you just a, a few pieces and then it all falls together. Mm-hmm. And so, in some cases, people like uh, Intercom is a great company where they 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 did we did probably a total of about thirty interviews, but three rounds of ten, and they've changed the whole business and they've they've grown over you know almost ten x in, so in eight what did you, what almost did you do two years. Them? So we did interviews of why people why did people sign up and why did people use them and then why did people leave. And, and by understanding that, we understood the hiring and firing criteria by which people did it. And they reorganized the business from being a platform that does everything 
to basically uh, four sets of products that do four different things and that are valued very differently. Though it's all on one platform, the reality is is that it needed to be separate in order for people to value it. What are they, some they, the- talk, they talk about it on their website and, the, and their blog and everything like that. Well, I love it. I mean, you're, so what are like what are the common things that you see that what are the biggest things that people are mistakenly doing? Are they doing too much? Are they just completely talking mainly to the features and benefits? Or that what, well, what, what happens is is that there's a combination of things. One is they end up with either personas or they end up you know and I always say a persona as a person without a soul. We don't we know that they might be middle aged and this a this income and you know two point five kids and. You know, all those things. But then also you say, all right, like, well, where are they and how do they make decisions? And you realize that that doesn't actually dictate how they make decisions. It's more context. And so if we, and now persona might be a part of that context, but usually it's very little in comparison to everything else. And so 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 part of it is really being able to understand what are the true context people are in and what are the true outcomes? What are those struggling moments and what's the new behavior that they're looking for? So when you're uh, when you're working with the the business owners, I mean, you, I'm assuming you got to be working with the, the owner and the founder in order to be able to make a sh- you know a, a dramatic shift in the vision or the the verbiage in the business, right? Yeah. So for me, I either work with whoever's in charge of the whole product line, the owner. Um, in some cases, it's the executive team. It depends on how big and how public and how global the company is, but. Um, from a startup, you're talking with somebody who usually owns the technology or somebody who's like the, the chief, uh, marketing officer, chief strategy officer, president, any of those people and, and everything from small, you know, uh, um, you know, million dollar companies all the way up to, you know, a couple billion dollar companies is, is where we work. And so it, the cool part is, is Clay's the one who really pushed me to make it very generalizable. Like he pushed me to really think about religion and why did people hire and fire religion. So doing all, I always thought it was just a product thing. And then I realized it was a product and service thing. And then I realized like I can apply it to my life and I can apply it to just about anything. And so we've really made it, the book really does a great job in kind of giving the general principles of how it works and make it very, almost like a general theory of how people buy and what they do. So then what, what are the like, practical ways that like once they kind of have this epiphany that you you know after the 30 interviews and such like what are the practical ways that people end up implementing and putting into their business yeah so so the first thing is 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 i think from a practical perspective is you can sit in a conference room all day and guess at what people would say or what you think they said or pulling pieces together but the interesting part is almost everybody's purchase has some level of irrationality in it. And it's not just functional. We call it functional, social, and emotional. And there's forces at different levels of functional, social, and emotional. And so the really important thing is to actually figure out the the predictably irrational pieces that people are making and being able to connect those dots. And so um, it's a, everything from changing positioning and messaging to um, um, taking features out to make it simpler. So in, in some cases, people keep thinking, if I add more and more features, it's better. But more and more features actually creates anxiety, which then causes people to say, gosh, you know, I'm not sure. I, I, I don't know if I can do seven in one. Like two in one's great, but I'm not sure I need seven in one. They're charging me too much money. And so all of a sudden, adding all these new features actually creates people to say, this isn't worth it and I want a lower price. It's all of a sudden you end up with the wrong thing. So part of it is really being able to to unpack down to the actions that people that cause people to move, and then redefining the messaging, 
the 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 product itself and then the services that are supported around it so as you're doing this um some of the things that um my listeners are aware of or some of my clients is you know really value building in your business so it's you know instead of just driving revenue and cutting yeah. costs like what is yep. it that you know a potential buyer is going to want because i mean at 3500 product launches you've had and you've seen some exits yourself yep. what's the correlation in the in the the message, well, like what you're doing with uh, the jobs to be done, and actually creating value within the company. So, so that's actually the 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 obsession and where it came from. So, when I so when I was 18, I was lucky enough to have be an intern with Dr. Deming. He took me to Japan, and I met um, people like Fukuhara and Ishikawa and De, um, um, Taguchi and people like that. And the real it really drove home the fact of what is value and what causes people. To, to value something over something else. And, and in most cases, it's not what they say, it's what they do. And so by following what they do, it's really about being able to understand those actions and getting it down to those actions. So to me, it's, it's like the, 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 what I would say is people, what happens, we try to make larger markets and we try to lean things out but I believe that one of the reasons why we have no growth is because nobody's helping people make progress. And progress is defined as saving money or being more efficient um, but it's, or being more effective, but not about doing something better and different. And so I believe that one of the things we have to really work on in the future is understanding what does progress look like and what is, you know, at some point, what is, where are we all going? And so to me, I spend a lot of time now um, in, in, I'll say, in, in the business I have to really try to define what is progress for people. Well, and progress is different. I mean, it's it's interesting that you, you, you're kind of breaking it down. I mean, it's all human emotion, right? I mean, progress, yeah. why someone buys – you know, some clothing versus consumer goods, uh, consumer goods or food or anything. They're all trying to do something uh, that's going to better themselves. Yeah. It, 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 the interesting part is that it, you'd think it was, but the thing is, is that like, uh, so we've been doing quite a bit of work in healthcare, and what you realize is that you know most people, you know, they, they keep saying you want a primary care physician. Nobody wants a primary care physician. They're forcing us all to have a primary care physician. But the, the, the reason why you go to the doctor is because you think something's wrong. You don't go to the doctor to get healthy. You go to the gym. You go to the Whole Foods. You, you get a nutritionist. You do a whole bunch of – last thing you do to get healthy is to go to the doctor. But if you're, <laughs> if you're sick, that's what you do. And so part of this is they've stripped the context out and said everybody who should be healthy should go to the doctor. And nobody in their right mind wants to do that unless they have a problem. Mm -hmm. And so part of it is being able to understand that the, the healthcare system actually is an extension of there's a good side and then there's the, the sick side and they need to come together. But the reality is, is nobody's going to the doctor to get healthy. Mm -hmm. They're going there because they, they, they want to get back to where they were. And so that, those are the kinds of things that you need to be able to understand. And the emotional side – like. I believe that, that healthcare has all the functional answers, but the reality is, is going to the doctor and going to the emergency room is more emotional and social. The number one reason why people actually go to the emergency room is they need an excuse to tell everybody else. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so, you know, a question for you is, uh, 
how do you hire other people or other leadership employees that think this way? You know, if you you know have this epiphany in your own and you own your business and you want to kind of shift the, the the conversations, what are some ways you can spread the the word of the gospel throughout your company? So, to be honest, I I use the Fight Club uh, uh, analogy. First thing about jobs is don't talk about jobs, <laughs> right? I think I think the notion is let the consumer talk for themselves, play the role of asking the question, and figure out what causes people to do it. So, so one of the businesses I was in is I built uh, homes here in Detroit, and I did we did about a thousand homes in three years, and and what what I realized is like when I started to talk about job when I started to talk about it, Everybody got confused. So I just said, look, this is the way we're going to interview customers. This is what they said. This is what we're going to do. Like the more I could just turn it into what to do, people did it. And we were very, very successful doing it. And so the aspect here to me, though, is gets back to, um, you know, I think the thing is, is you can get caught too much up in theory. But at the same time, the fact is, is what the consumer says or what the customer, what causes the customer to buy your product or to switch to your product or from your product that's what you really want to get to, and that's that's what people need to know. And so, how you get it, I'm not sure is as important as knowing it. Well, and today, I mean, I think it's more important than ever because the consumer's ability to switch and to get information from your competitors is so huge. And and the, we have less, you know, scientifically speaking, we don't have less time, but it sure feels like it. Well, I think that time is the ultimate of all. It's like money is always turned back into time, and time is is the most precious of all assets. Like, so a friend of mine asked me the other day, is like, you know, what's what's on your bucket list? What's what's your dream? And and so part of it is as much as I've been doing this for what I call the supply side of the world, which is people making products for other people. Uh, you know, I would really, really, I think the it's 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 flipping the lens. Like, if we could help people understand the progress they're trying to make. So they can be better shoppers. So they can actually figure out what they want. More importantly, because I feel like we have so much waste in this in this country because we don't actually know what we want. We just buy a bunch of stuff and then we don't use it. And so if we can actually help people articulate their progress, so so think about this as you as you as you build your business and you're ready to finally sell it, right? It's like, what's the progress for you? You just you just built and sold a business or built a business and ready to sell. Like, what does progress look like for you? And how do you help people? And how what 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 you know, what's your metric for how you you think that you've fulfilled your life? And so part of this is getting people to realize it's not through the products, but the actions that you take. And so if that's the case, how do you get these people, you know, life after business, right? It's like what what's progress look like at mm-hmm. 70? Right, and it's not just waking up in the morning and having breakfast. I mean, that's just sad. <laughs> right, or or 180 rounds of golf. Right. <laughs> yeah, my favorite is the people who think golf is the greatest thing, and then they, they they retire and they play like you know six months of golf, and like yeah, if this is it, I'm in trouble. <laughs> right. Um. It. Have you ever? I don't know if you're familiar with the book called Stealing Fire. No, I'm not. It is a really intriguing book. I just got done with it, and. Uh, Stephen Kotler and Jamie Wheel wrote this book, and it's it expands on this term flow, which I yeah. think oh yeah, I know, oh, like real, I'm a, like I'm an absolute uh, passion nut about the term flow and 
because I think entrepreneurs are living in this flow state, which is pretty much on a high, or you're in the zone 24-7. Yep. And uh, the stealing fire, just, there's some crazy ways where we can actually quantify how our brains get into this state. Oh, yeah, for it, sure. It's super wild. And I think, you know, you know, you as a business owner and all the different things, the 3,500 product launches, I mean, you're probably living in this state all the time but to go back when you were talking about the consumer behavior and how these uh, how our all of our clients are buying the it's trillions of dollars that is spent every single year for people to try and get out of their head which is yep. wild. when you talk about what progress is for people you see you, you throw this kind of lens on it and it's like yeah. people are just trying to leave the voices and they want to somehow continue their progress to be a fuller individual Right. So a good friend of mine basically said, you know, when you when you're in the midst of running your business and you're raising your children and you're doing all these things, you know, your bank account is usually empty uh, or your bank account is full. But the reality is, is your 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 time bank account is empty. So you literally don't have time to do anything. And the moment you retire, all of a sudden your bank account's full or your bank account's empty because you're not getting cash flow. But the reality is, is your time is full. And so part of it is to realize like how do what does progress look like when I can't spend whatever I want to spend and I've got a but I've got all the time in the world. And so part of this is realizing like that I'm not sure the 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 notion of retirement is going to stay the same. I think we're going to talk about transitions where people rethink basically what retirement looks like and how they spend their time and what they want to do. But you know, obviously some people have to work, but even those people who don't have to work, my belief is you're going to, you're going to end up figuring out how to donate. You're going to figure out how to volunteer. You're going to figure out how to do a whole bunch of different things. Well, and that's, uh, that was kind of the primary focus of, uh, Tana and I's conversation where she used her, her, her business as a platform to, you know, really tackle the domestic violence, um, issue yes. where at, at some point the quarterly reports and doing all this, uh, the stuff is kind of, it runs its course. So where are you going to be able to use your resources, your community, your business to be able to tackle bigger and more purposeful, purposeful issues? That's right. What's the dent in the universe you want to, you know, and, and so Clay has a book called How Will You Measure Your Life? Have you read One that? One of my favorite books, by the way. I yeah. literally love that book. <laughs> yeah. So, so. Um, to me, it's, it's, you know, the number of people you're going to help. And that's why to me it is like, I always carve the time to, to get on podcasts to, to do, to help as many people as possible. Cause you just, you don't, you just don't know. And, and to be honest, it's one of those things, um, that, that, that you realize that when you, when you offer up an hour here or an hour there, that you can have a lot of impact in the world. And so, and you have that lens, you don't worry about, you know, kind of the bank account you worry about where, you know, if I die tomorrow, did I help enough people? Yeah, I love it. So, uh, Bob, what is the best way our listeners can get in touch with you? Yep. So, um, I would say LinkedIn. So, I'm Bob Mesta, M O E S T A, or uh, I'm on Twitter at uh, at B Mesta, or um, you can find me at the therewiredgroup.com. Bob, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. It was wonderful. Thanks for having me on. Mm-hmm.